We're delighted that you're here. We have a good number present. We appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors and we're glad that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. It's good to be back after being away in a gospel meeting at Southside in Owensboro, Kentucky. Been with that church a couple of times before. Good church there, overseen by two good elders and Jonathan Brown is the local preacher there doing an excellent work. This is where the Bruce family was from before they came to be with us. Worship there, I think Dick, uh, Ricky served as a deacon there, I think. Anyway, that's a good church and good to be with him, but good to be back. If you're going to be with us this evening, hopefully you will. Make your plans to be back with us. I've been asked if I could deal with the question of the Godhead. How do we explain one God, three personalities? That's not easy, but I'm going to try. So we're going to do that tonight and come back and we'll talk about the Godhead this evening. I encourage you to get a Bible. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 17, let's talk about the context and let's see what is said in that context. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the context is dealing with responsibilities that we have as Christians. We have a responsibility to elders, he mentions that. He talks about responsibilities that we have to, uh, to God, to all brethren. He talks about responsibilities that we have to God. And in the context of the responsibilities that we have to our God, he mentions at verse 17 that we are to, as our screen shows before you, pray without ceasing. This is in view of the second coming because that's what the book is about. The book deals with the second coming of the Lord. And the text says, pray without ceasing. Hendrickson observes that this phrase simply means that there must be no decline in regularity of the habit of taking hold of God in the midst of all circumstance of life. And so the question is, do we have regularity with reference to our prayer life, as this text so says? It's a more lengthy quotation, but bear with Barnes. Barnes captures the thought, I think. When he says what that phrase means, pray without ceasing, is that there are to be regular and constant observance of the stated seasons of prayer. We are to observe the duty of prayer in the closet, in the family, and in the assembly convened to call on the name of the Lord. We are not to allow this duty to be interrupted or intermitted by any trifling cause. We are, to so, uh, we are so to act that it may be said we pray regularly in the closet, in the family, and at usual season when church prays to which we belong. We're to maintain an uninterrupted and constant spirit of prayer. We're to be in such a frame of mind as to be ready to pray publicly if requested, and if alone, to improve the moment of leisure, which may have, we may have when we feel ourselves strongly inclined to pray. Now listen to this. That Christian is in a bad state of mind who has suffered himself by the attention of the worldly cares or by light conversation or gaiety or vanity or by the reading of improper book or the eating or drinking too much or by late hours at night among thoughtless and vain to be brought into such a condition that he cannot engage in prayer with proper feelings. There has been evil done to the soul if not prepared for the communion with God at all times and if it, and, and if it would not, not find pleasure in approaching his holy throne. Well, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said something very similar, a little briefer. And they said that what the passage means is we're to pray without intermission. Not allowing prayerless gaps to intervene between times of prayer. Obviously, as you hear many times 
as the text is exegeted, that it doesn't mean that you pray and never quit praying, that you just stay in a constant prayer all of the time, but it, there are not gaps in our prayers. So what the text is actually saying is that we should pray on a regular basis, and that is what other texts would tell us. And so, for example, in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 3, Paul talked about always praying for you. This was quite common as he would begin a letter in an epistle that I pray always for you, which means he constantly prayed. Well, in Ephesians 6 and in verse 18, in talking about putting on the whole armor of God, this is part of that. He says praying always with all prayer. So here again is continual prayer, pray on a regular basis. Luke 18 and in verse 1, he spoke a parable of this end, and here was the end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Men ought always to be a praying people. And then that parable that he mentions there is driven to that point. But furthermore, 1 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 10, earlier in this same book that we started with a moment ago, that Paul talked about that night and day he was praying. That he prayed night and he prayed day. In other words, on a regular basis, he was always praying. So here's the point. We should be a praying people. That's what I learned from 1 Thessalonians and all of these other texts. Now let's define prayer for a moment. Let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 10 and in verse 1. Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Many recognize that Romans 10 and verse 1 not only is saying, here's what I'm praying about, but it gives us a concept of what prayer is. And that is prayer involves taking the heart's desire and the heart's longing and expressing them to God. That is in what, what is involved in prayer. In other words, prayer involves taking my thoughts and talking to God about them. Prayer involves taking my concerns and talking to God and telling him about them. Prayer involves taking my hopes and my wishes and asking God for them. Prayer involves taking my problems and asking for God's help. So what I have on my mind and what my longings of my mind and the concepts of my mind are, when I take those and express those to God, that's what's involved in prayer. So let's talk this morning about praying without ceasing, using 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14 as our basis, that we ought to be a praying people. So let's begin listing some things. That if we're going to pray without ceasing, we need to get a focus on the time of prayer. If we're going to pray without ceasing, and every Christian would, I think, admit, you know what, I want to be one who prays without ceasing, then we need to focus on the time of prayer. Now, what do we mean by the time of prayer? We ought to have a regular time of prayer. Let's look at a couple of examples. Let's go back to the Psalms. Psalm 55, this is a psalm as Jensen observed of the sore distressed, someone who is in trouble, someone who's crying for help. And here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 55 and in verse 17, he said, evening and morning and noon I will pray and cry aloud. In the midst of the sore distress, in the midst of all my troubles, I never quit praying evening and morning and noon. In other words, he had regular times of prayer. Another passage on the screen before you is Daniel 6 and in verse 10. And this was the case where Daniel, in his old age, opened his windows and prayed to the Lord three times that day, as was his custom since the former times. In other words, he'd done this all of his life. So he had regular times of prayer. It gives us the idea in both of these passages of regularity of prayer, but daily prayer. 
So if we want to pray without ceasing, we need to focus on the time of prayer. There needs to be a regular time of prayer in our lives. Secondly, let's consider, still developing the idea of the time of prayer, let's turn to two passages that focus on time. Let's turn to Mark 1 and in verse 35. Here is a case where Jesus seemed to make, make and schedule time for prayer. Let's turn to Mark 1 and verse 35. I want to draw a distinction. And that is, it doesn't seem that in the life of Jesus, that when he just happened to find some extra time on his hand, he prayed. Or that as he was, had a, a downtime for a moment, that he might spend a little time praying because he had nothing else to do. But rather, it seemed in the prayer life of Jesus, he was making and scheduling time for prayer. Mark 1.35, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Do you think that passage is saying that Jesus couldn't sleep and he tossed and turned and he thought, well, I might as well get up, can't do anything else. I'll get up and I think I'll pray. Or do you think maybe that he got up early in the morning for the purpose of devoting some time to prayer? He was making and scheduling time for prayer. Let's turn to Luke chapter 6 and in verse 12, another passage, not exactly parallel, but it is in principle to this one. And that is that he went into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer unto God. Do you think it was that he couldn't sleep? Had nothing else to do and he tosses and turns, so I think I'll just spend all night praying unto God. I don't think that's what the passage is saying. I think it means that he made and he scheduled some time for prayer unto God. Now as we focus on the time of prayer, we learn from those passages we can pray at any time. We can pray day, we can pray night, we can pray 24-7, 365. In other words, there's not an opportunity that I can only pray from 8 to 12. I can only pray from 8 to 9. I can only pray in a certain window. And so I've got to avail myself of that opportunity. If we're going to pray without ceasing, we must make time on a daily basis and make and schedule time for prayer. But here's the second thing. If we're going to pray without ceasing, we need to focus on the place for prayer. We need to focus on the place for prayer. Let's turn to John chapter 4, if you will, and Jesus in his discussion with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and the text tells us there that the place really doesn't matter. So what's the point? Well, let's see. Let's turn to John chapter 4, beginning at verse 20. There was a discussion between the Jews and the Samaritans about the place and, and uh, as to where prayer was to be offered. And beginning at John chapter 4, beginning at verse 20, he said, Our fathers worship in this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem, this is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus, that was her speaking. And Jesus answered and said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem uh, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jew. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh those who worship him. What's his point? His point is, this, the time is coming when the place doesn't matter. It won't matter whether it's in Jerusalem or Mount Garrison or wherever it may be. The place doesn't matter. So here's what I learned from that. I learned that there is no holy place in which to pray. In other words, prayer offered in the confines of the room of this building is no more holy than what's offered out in your cornfield. In other words, you don't have to come to the, to the sanctified place and offer prayer unto God. And you think of the beauty and the harmony of that. That you can offer prayer in your living room or in your backyard or in your basement or in your garage or in your car and it be just as acceptable unto God as offered within the confines of the church building or wherever it may be. 
But I'm more interested in this point. We're focusing now on the place of prayer. And let's go back to two passages and we'll add a third. We've already mentioned two. Mark 1, we've already read. Luke 12, we've already quoted. And that is when Jesus prayed, he found a quiet and a solitary place for prayer. In the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Mark 1, he went out into a solitary place and there he prayed. There was something in the life of Jesus that made him leave one place and go to another place for the purpose of prayer. It was that important to him. Could he have prayed where he was? Well, I'm certain he could because you can pray anywhere. John 4 told us that. But there was something about a solitary place, free from distraction, where nothing is going to disturb your thoughts, where he could focus and, uh, and concentrate on his prayer unto God. Luke 6 and verse 12, he went into the mountains to pray. Could he not pray at the foot of the hill? Well, certainly he could. Could he not pray on the busy street of the city? Well, certainly he could. But there was some value in this solitary place where he prayed. Now, let's add one more passage to that list. Let's look at Luke chapter 22, if you will. And look at Luke chapter 22 now and in verse 39. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as, was he, as he was a custom, and his disciples also followed him. And this is when he went and prayed in the garden he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed to doing. Here was a solitary place. Now, as we're, going to, uh, as we're going to pray without ceasing, we need to focus on the place for prayer. Place doesn't matter, meaning there's no one place better than another as far as being more holy or more acceptable, but seek out a place wherein there is a quiet and a solitary place. Here's what I learned from the example of Jesus. I learned that prayer was important enough to Jesus that he was willing to lose sleep in order to pray. Luke 6 tells me that. He prayed all night. He got up early while it, before daylight. Mark 1 in verse 35. I learned something else from that. That it was important enough he was willing to leave one place and go to another place just for the purpose of praying that he might find quiet and solitude that he might approach God in prayer. Here's a third thing. If we're going to focus on uh, praying without ceasing, we need to keep our focus not only on the time for prayer and the place for prayer, but also the reasons for prayer. Why am I praying in the first place? Why do I need to approach God in prayer? What's the purpose of prayer? Those things need to be answered. So let's start with this. First of all, it's commanded. That I need to find a place and a time in my life where I can pray unto God because God said pray without ceasing. I don't need to have in, uh, interrupted or intermissions in prayer, meaning I prayed a good bit last year, but I haven't prayed a lot in the last six months. I don't need to have that in my life. So I need to pray without ceasing. <clears throat> and why do I need to do that? Because God commanded that. Here's the second reason. In order to praise God, not only do I praise God in the assembly, but even in my private prayers, I'm praying and praising God. Let's look at the model prayer. We looked at this in Bible class this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray. Here's how you ought to pray. We often call this the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer because he's saying, here's what you ought to be praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is a statement of praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look at verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is a statement of praise. 
You want to see some phrases of praise and prayer? Look at Jeremiah 32. We're not going to go there. That's a good reference to look for for expressions of praise and prayer. Why should I be praying? Well, in order that I might grow. You say, I want to grow spiritually. I want to be stronger today than I was yesterday. I want to be stronger tomorrow than I am today. I want to keep growing in the service of the Lord. Turn to Colossians 1 and verse 9. Here's what Paul said. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we did not cease to pray for you and ask. What were you praying for, Paul, about the Colossians? We'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now notice verse 11, strengthened with all might. And that's not all of it. In other words here, I want you to grow. That's why I'm praying for you. So we need to pray that we might grow, that we may gain help in time of need. We have a, a merciful high priest whom we can approach in time of need, Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 14. So when I'm struggling through the trials and the tribulations, I go to my high priest. And I appeal to my high priest that he might make an appeal to God for me that I might have the help in time of need. We cast our cares upon God because he cares for us, 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse 7. But here's another reason why we pray, because it works. We're going to come back to this passage a little bit later, but the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the text says, avails much. It works. It's powerful. It does good. So if I'm going to pray without ceasing, I need to focus on the reasons for prayer. I do it because God told me to, because I want to praise God, I want to grow, I need help in time of need, and I am one who is wanting to do something that is effective, and therefore I pray. As we talk about that, let's talk about how prayer affects our marriages. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 7, there is a direct connection between marriage and prayer. There is a direct connection between the two. Husband, dwell with your wives according to understanding, as giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Notice at the end of the verse he says that your prayers be not hindered, the text says. Here's what I learned from that. How one treats their mates may hinder their prayers. There's a direct connection between prayer life unto God and how you treat your mate. So if you're treating your mate well, that affects your prayer life. If you're treating your mate in a way contrary to the will of God, that affects your prayers, whether or not God accepts those prayers. Let's go further. 1 Corinthians 7 in verse 5, showing again a connection between prayer and marriage. Prayer was the only valid reason given in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 to deprive or separate from your mate that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. You don't separate because you're fussy. You don't separate because you can't get along. You don't separate because you're mad at one another. You separate that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Prayer is directly related to the marriage relationship. 1 Corinthians 7 and in verse 5. Here's what I learned from those two passages. That our marriage can affect my prayer life. When this turns sour, my prayer is no longer effective. 1 Peter Peter 3 and in verse 7. My prayer life directly, directly affects my marriage relationship. So you say, I want to have a great, great marriage. You need to be praying. You say, I want to have a great prayer life. You better have a good married life. If you're a married person, you better be treating your mate the way you want if you want your prayer life to be acceptable unto God. But here's something else. If we're going to pray without ceasing, we need to focus on the manner of our prayer. So I want to be a praying person. I want to do what the Lord said. I want to pray without ceasing. I need to focus on the manner of prayer. 
what's involved in the manner of prayer. Let's go back to this text in John chapter 4. We read that a moment ago. This is in that discussion with the woman of Samaria. And following on the heels of this discussion where the place doesn't matter, he said those that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now understand what it means to worship God in truth. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? What I'm learning is, I'm to worship God and I'm to pray unto God in spirit. Well, here's a divine commentary on that. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2, if you will, verses 28 and 29. Here is a good definition of what it means to do something in spirit. He's not talking about prayer here. He's just, I'm using the term in spirit. What does he mean by that? Turn to Romans 2, 28 and 29. He's talking about a true Jew versus one who is not a true Jew. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, that is a circumcision that is outward in the flesh. Well, who's a true Jew then, Paul? Look at verse 29. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and the circumcision that is of the heart. What do you mean of the heart? Keep reading. In the spirit and not of the letter. You see, to do something in the heart, that is to pray or in the spirit, means from the heart that is sincere and not merely outward form. The manner in which I'm to pray is, I'm to be sincere in that. It is to be from the heart. That's the idea of doing something in the Spirit. Well, let's go to James 5 and in verse 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What's the idea of a fervent prayer? That's the manner in which you ought to pray. I'll pray fervently. If you want your prayer to be effective, you need to be a fervent prayer. What does that mean? That means earnest, striving, being zealous. Taking prayer seriously. You say, why do you mean taking it seriously? Let's look at an example of our Lord in Luke chapter 22. And I don't mean by this in Luke chapter 22 and in verse 44 that if you don't go through this outward experience that you're not serious. But I do understand this, that when Jesus was praying, the things that are going on tells me and gives testimony he was serious about his praying. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Well, what would be evidence that we know that other than the Lord just told us here, if we were watching, if we could see it? Well, then sweat drops became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was praying fervently and earnestly. In other words, he took prayer very seriously. That's what it means to pray fervently. Take prayer seriously. That's the manner in which we're to pray. It is not a ritual. It is not something we re merely recite. It's not a ritual we go through in Matthew chapter 5. Don't pray like those who uh, like, uh, use the Hindu will or whatever it is the Hail Marys so that we're constantly saying the same thing with a repetition over and over and over without any meaning at all. Something that's vain from the very start. Here's something else. If I'm going to pray without ceasing, I need to focus on the content of prayer. It's not just my attitude. It's not just my fervency and a time that I need to devote, but I need to think and focus upon what I'm praying about, the content of my prayer. What am I going to pray about? What am I going to talk to the Lord about? Well, first of all, I can talk to the Lord about some specific things. Some specific things. I'm going to skip the passage in Luke, though it makes that point, and I want us to turn to James chapter 5. Let's go to James chapter 5. Speaking of prayer, this is obviously an example of some specific things. By the way, by the way, verse 17 follows on the heels of that statement in verse 16 that said the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
And verses 17 and 18 is a for instance of that. Like what? Like what? Well, let's see. Verse 17. That Elijah, this is an illustration of the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here's his illustration. Elijah was a man of like nature, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Did his prayer do any good? Let's see. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Here was a man that prayed specifically about raining and not raining. On one occasion, he prayed it wouldn't rain. On another occasion, he prayed that it would rain. He's praying very specifically about some things. Let me add another point to that. That is, we may pray specifically for certain people, not just our brethren in general, not just my family, not just those who are sick. Well, we might do like the Lord in Luke chapter 22. Then he said, Peter, I have prayed for you. That's a singular term, by the way. He said, Satan has desired you. That was a plural term. He's desired all of you. But he says, Peter, I have prayed for you, you specifically. I prayed for Peter. That your faith would not fail. You may want to pray for somebody particular and call them by name to the Lord and say, I'm praying for them that their faith wouldn't fail or that they will grow or that they will obey the gospel or that they will get better or whatever it is that we want to pray about. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 2 and in verse 1, it lists a number of elements of prayer. If we're going to pray without ceasing, we need to be familiar with the elements of prayer, the kinds of things we need to be praying about. Paul said, I exhort that supplications and prayers and the intercession and the giving of thanks be made for all men. Some have wondered if those are saying the same thing over and over, but really those must be different things. There are supplication, prayers, intercession, and the giving of things. Prayer is a broad term, but seemingly here it's specific. Including what? Well, supplications obviously have to do with asking a need or an entreaty. Prayers seem to be having reference to a request for something good. Where in intercession I'm making a plea for others, in thanksgiving I'm thankful to God for things he's that he's done for me, the blessings that he's provided. And I'm beginning to get an idea here that there's a lot to pray about. I have a lot to be thankful for. I have a great deal of people that I may need to plead for. I may have a great deal I need to ask about. I may have a a number of supplications or an entreaty, God, would you help in this circumstance, this problem we're having in our society, or in the family, or in the church, or wherever it may be. May I suggest you prayers can vary. There are two occasions where Jesus prayed, and one time he prayed for a long, long, long time. Another occasion he prayed for a very short time. That doesn't mean my prayer has to be longer, it has to be short. It just means there may be an occasion when I would be like Jesus in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. He continued all night in prayer unto God. Now, commentaries raise the question, and I'm still puzzled over the question. Did that mean Jesus started praying in the early hours of the night and he prayed all night long in one continuous prayer? He could have. That's a long prayer. Or did he pray for a while and then take a break and he prayed for a while and then he took a break and he prayed a while and he took a break and he prayed for a while and took a break? And if that's what he did, that's still a lot of praying, I want to tell you. That's a lot of praying. There were three times in Matthew chapter 26 where his prayer consisted of about 11 words, I think, if I remember correctly. If it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as I will. And that was his prayer. He's over. He's done. He's finished. Said the same thing again. And said the same thing again. That's the content of our prayer. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about the power of prayer now. If we're going to pray and be people that are a praying people and pray without ceasing and not have 
times of gaps in our prayer, we must focus on the power that prayer has. One of the reasons that we may not be described as being the praying people of the Old Testament, Homer Haley used to say years ago, in view of his study of the Old Testament and the study of prayer in the Old Testament, that we're not praying like we did in the Old, like people did in the Old Testament times. He may be right. One of the reasons for that may be that we don't fully understand the power that prayer has. That we fully don't comprehend that there is great power in prayer. So let's talk about the power of prayer. Let's talk about what can be done through prayer. What you can accomplish through prayer. What can you accomplish through prayer? Well, let's see. Do you realize that through prayer you can talk to the Almighty God? The creator of the universe, the very one who spoke in the beginning and it was done? You can talk to the creator of the universe. You don't just talk to some staffer who will get the message to him. Try calling the White House and see if you can talk to the president. You might get a, uh, you might and may not, you might get somebody that answers the phone down here, some caller that would pass it on to somebody else who passes it on to somebody else who passes it on to somebody else and then it's thrown away. Probably would never get to the president. But do you realize in prayer you can talk directly to the Almighty God? You can change the weather. And you say, I don't believe we can affect the weather by prayer. Wasn't that the illustration he gave? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, it does good. And his illustration of it was a man praying about the weather. It very well may be through your prayers that a storm is averted. It very well may be through your praying that rain comes to parched ground and the crops are saved. If that's not the conclusion to be drawn from James 5, I'm not sure what James 5 is about. Here's something else you can do through prayer. This was in the context of healing those that are sick. Praying for those that were sick. That here is somebody who is sick and they will recover because we prayed for them. There's something else that can be accomplished. We can obtain forgiveness. Repent and pray, God, if perhaps all your heart be forgiven you. We can be forgiven of our sins. A nation could be spared. Over in the book of Esther, chapter 4. Remember, this is right on the heels of... That statement, for who knows whether you come to the kingdom to God uh, for such a time as this, that was Mordecai to Esther. You very well may have come to the kingdom to spare this nation, and she proclaimed a fast, which was symbols for prayer. In other words, we need to be praying, and the nation was spared. And so you look around, and you see this nation's going down the tubes. It very well may be your prayers and my prayers that spares this nation if it's spared. There's power in prayer. That's the point I want us to see. Prayer does good. A nation could be spared. Now, if prayer is powerful enough to accomplish all of that, then would prayer not be powerful enough to accomplish what my request or my need is? And so you say, I've got needs. I, th there are things that, that, that I've got on my mind. I, I just wish, I just really wish that could be accomplished. If prayer can accomplish that, certainly it would have power to do what you want. Let's go back to James chapter 5. I want us to see that prayer has power. James chapter 5 says... We have it in yellow, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does that mean? It doesn't mean it accomplishes what you want it to accomplish, but it's powerful. And I borrowed Brother Haley's illustration. You've seen it before, but it's a powerful illustration. He said it's like this man who takes an arrow and he shoots it at a target. And he may hit the bullseye, and he said that that arrow was effective because it hit the bullseye. He may shoot the arrow and miss the target completely. 
Would you say the, power, the, the arrow has no force? It didn't do anything? Oh, yeah, it did something. It may have done nothing but split open the air. It may have took the bark off of the tree. It may have put a hole in the ground. It missed his target, but it still has power and it still has force. And that's the point that, Jesus, or that James is making in James chapter 5. Prayer has power and it has force. It may not accomplish what I wanted. I wanted this person to get better. And they died. So prayer didn't do anything. Oh, yeah, it did. And it still has power. Or this passage is meaningless. Effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let's look at another passage. 1 Peter 3 and verse 12. By the way, this is a quotation from Psalm 34, as you recognize. So as we are familiar with those twin Psalms, 33 and 34, when we look at 1 Peter 3, we immediately think about Psalm 34. And here's what he said. He's quoting from Psalm 34. That the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. What does that mean, his ears open to their prayers? Is that saying, God hears your prayers, but he's not going to do anything about it? Well, then what's the point of the text? When he's saying God's ears are open to your prayers, that means God's hearing and he's responding to your prayer. The answer may be yes. The answer may be no or it may be wait. But God's hearing and he's responding and he's answering. You have the assurance God heard that prayer and he's going to respond to that prayer. You say, well, I didn't get what I wanted. I, I prayed that, that, that my family, my loved one would get better and they didn't. God wasn't hearing my prayer. Oh, yes, he heard your prayer. This text says his ears are open to your prayers. That means he may say yes, but his answer may be no. He knows best. Or it may be wait for a while. Let's spend a moment talking about providence. You cannot study prayer without thinking about providence. And you can't go and say, I want to do a study of the providence of God without somehow touching on prayer. They go hand in hand. They're locked together. You can't separate the two. Now, you can talk about one without talking about it, but they're, they're, they're together. They go hand in hand. So let's talk about providence for a moment. What is providence? I'll quote from Brother Haley, and I'm going to show you from the New Testament and Old Testament that this is exactly what providence is. Brother Haley said, here's what providence is. It's the working of God through the provision in the natural and spiritual realm, yet a control that violates neither the sovereignty of the human will nor the divine natural and spiritual laws. I say amen to that. The word providence is only used one time in the New Testament. You remember in Acts chapter 24. What's talking about the providence of God? It's talking about a leader. That through your providence, some translations will translate that through your forethought. So the idea of, of, of providence means God had forethought. That's what he's talking about. That God used forethought in creating a universe that he could control to accomplish his purpose. I want you to follow this now. This is, a, this is an important part of providence. God created a universe that he could control to accomplish his purpose. Not to make us puppets, but he controls the universe. That's the idea of forethought. In fact, you see the word provide in providence. In other words, providence is that non-miraculous use of natural law and circumstance to accomplish his purpose. That's what providence is. Winston Atkinson said, it's the divine intervention in the affairs of men within the confines of natural law. In other words, it's God working through natural means. That's the idea of providence. Now, some have the concept that if God works somehow and answers my prayer, that's got to be a miracle. You see, I prayed for the sick to get better, and they got better. That's a miracle. Oh, man, that's a miracle. There's a difference in a miracle in God's providence. He'll illustrate. 
We have on the one side, we have a birth of a child, we have a birth of a child, we have a change in weather, change in weather. One side is providence, the other is, is a miracle. Let's see what they are. Hannah prayed that she would have a child and God answered her prayer. She had a child. No one thinks that was a virgin birth. I don't know of anybody. I don't know of a Martinist who thinks that. That thinks that was a virgin birth story. That was a natural relationship. She had a child, but it wasn't a virgin birth. It was a miraculous thing, but God answered her prayer. On the other side, we have a birth of a child, but now this one has to be a miracle because that was a woman who was a virgin that had a son. That had to be a miracle. Over here, we have a change in the weather. James chapter uh, 5 quotes Elijah praying that it might not rain. He prayed that it would rain. There's no evidence that that was a miracle. You say, how do you know it wasn't a miracle? Because James uses that to say that we can do the same kind of thing that he did. Remember that? All right. But over here we have a change in the weather, but this was a miraculous thing where Jesus calmed the storm. On the one side, natural means were used. Over here it is supernatural means. One's a miracle, the other is providence. So prayer doesn't involve God violating his natural law. That's miracles. Prayer involves God answering that prayer through providence. So let's understand that God is in control. I want to quickly notice some points. Let's go back to the book of Nehemiah. God is involved in the operation of the universe now. Go back to Nehemiah chapter, um, chapter 9, if you will. Nehemiah chapter 9, in verses 6 to 8, here is a statement of providence. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, this would be a good time to mark that. Look at verse 6. That you alone, O Lord, have made the heavens the heaven of heavens and all their host, and the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. In other words, God created the world. Now at the end of verse 6, and you preserve them, the host of heavens worship you. God created the universe, then he preserves the universe. See that? Now verse 7, you chose Abraham and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans. That's God carrying out his purpose. So here we have three statements. God created the world, he preserves the world, and then he uses that preserved world to carry out his purpose. I tell you, if that's not providence, I don't know what passage it deals with. That's the God's providence, God carrying out. God still rules in the kingdoms of men. God is still on his throne and in control. So that tells me God is in control of the operation of the universe. Now God's concerned about us. This is part of God being in control. What do you mean God's concerned? Well, he cares for us like he cares for the grass of the field, Matthew chapter 5. That's why we're not to worry. A sparrow will not fall without God taking notice of that, according to Matthew chapter 10. So God cares about me. So what's my conclusion? Well, God's will, since he's in control of the universe, his will. Now listen to this carefully. His will can be altered, not his law, but his will, his intent. You say, how do you know? Well, that doesn't mean he changes his law or his revelation. But God a number of times has changed his mind about something. Example, what about Abraham pleading for Sodom? Remember that? God was going to destroy Sodom, and, and remember Abraham pleading, would you save it for 50? God changed his mind and said, I'll spare it for 50. Well, if there are 40, would you spare it? God changed his mind and said, I'll spare it for 40. What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? God's changing his mind, not changing his law. He didn't suddenly decide homosexuality is okay, but what he decided was, I'll spare the name. He's changing his mind, not his law, not his revelation. He's changing his mind, his intent. God's intent can be changed. 
Moses pled for Israel and God changed his mind to wipe them out. Remember that? Jonah pled for Nineveh and God changed his mind. So if God's in control of the universe, he cares about me and his will can be changed, then I'm understanding that God has the power to answer my prayers. Now, how does God answer my prayer? How does he do that? God answers prayer without violating human will. You say, how do you know? Man's still a free moral agent. In other words, if I pray for you that you would obey the gospel when you haven't obeyed the gospel and God makes you do that contrary to your will, you don't have free will. Romans 6 says man has free will. Man still has freedom of choice, doesn't he? God answers without violating natural law. Because to do otherwise would be a miracle. So if I pray for something to happen and then something miraculous takes place, that's a violation of natural law. That's supernatural. That's what a miracle is. God operates within the confines. This is what Nehemiah 9 was saying. Go back to in, in your mind to Nehemiah 9. He created a universe that he can control. This is what Revelation 4, 17 is saying. By your will they are and they were created. God created a universe that he could control. So here's the idea. God operates within the natural confines. I borrowed this from Homer Haley. That God's in the driver's seat. When, you, when you, have your, you drive your car, you're controlling your car. You can turn to the right or to the left. You can go fast, you can go slow. You can go forward, you can go backward. You're in control. But you're, you're operating within the confines of the laws upon which the car was built. God has put natural law into place. He's operating within the confines of natural law. But God's in the driver's seat of the universe. He still rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4. He's, in, he's on his throne and in control. He's preserving his universe, uh, Nehemiah 9. Which means God can turn this universe where he wants. He can speed things up. He can slow it down. He can go whatever direction he wants. God's turning the wheel, but within the confines of the natural law in which his universe was created. Now, while we talk about providence, let's look at two cases. Esther 4. Remember the storyline that we see that Esther didn't see was that she came to the throne to spare the nation. But I'm not concerned about our viewpoint that God tells us. But what about her viewpoint and Mordecai's viewpoint? They didn't know. So here's what Mordecai said. For who knows whether you're come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It very well may be, in other words, that God brought you to the throne, made you queen to spare this nation. They didn't know. You know why? Because God hadn't told them. That God tells us, but God didn't tell them. Philemon 15. For perhaps he departed for a season that you may receive him forever. Maybe this is providence. That's what he's saying. Maybe, just maybe. So we need to be careful. We know God works. And we know God's providence is at work, but we don't always, or we're not always told exact cases of providence. Let me illustrate. A preacher friend of mine one time, several, many years ago, was driving along the road, headed to a gospel meeting, and got within just a mile or two of the, of the meeting house. And his car broke down right in front of someone else's house. And so he's wondering, how am I going to get to the meeting house to start the meeting here in just a few minutes? And so the man of the house came out and said, can I help you? And he said, well, I, I need to do something, fix the car, change the tire, whatever I need to do, but, but, but I don't have time to do that now. And the man said, I'll, I'll drive you where you need to go. 
And so the preacher said, well, what about your wife? Would, would she go too? Why don't you just go and stay with me down there and, and wait on me while I'm preaching and then come bring me back? And he said, well, okay, we'll do that. And so they go to the meeting. They go back the next night. They go back the next night. They go back the next night. And they obey the gospel. And years later, they're faithful members. Now, was that an act of providence that his car broke down? You say, yes. How do you know? How do you know? My answer to that is perhaps. Who knows? It could be a coincidence, but it very well be, may be that within the confines of natural law, that that is an act of providence that God allowed it to break down right in front of the house knowing the hearts of these people. But I don't know that. I just thank God for it. That's the point. God answers our prayer. So what have we seen in our study this morning? We ought to be a praying people. We ought to pray without ceasing. And in order to do so, we need to focus on the time of prayer. We need to focus on the place of prayer, the reasons for prayer, the manner of prayer, the content of prayer, and the power of prayer. And when we get our focus on those aspects of prayer, we will be indeed a praying people. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism? for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come all together? We stand and sing.